Okay, this morning uh, we continue our study as I, I noted that we began last week on the penalty for sin. And if you recall from last Sunday, uh, we looked at the first two parts there on your note sheet. And if you don't have one, Desmond's coming with some more um, of what the penalty for sin is. And we were using the uh, Westminster Catechism. Just raise your hand real quick if you don't have a note sheet and Desmond will... Yeah, you want Thanks, Des. So, I want to take a look here at uh, question 19 in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, just as a review and then also kind of as a starting point for where we're headed uh, this morning. So, question 19 here states, What is the misery of that estate whereinto man fell? And the answer to that is all mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. So last week we talked about the first two there, the loss of communion with God and being under his wrath and under the curse because of our rebellion against God. And then flowing out of that is this reality that we're made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. Uh, so you can flip over onto the back side of your notes because that's where we'll, we'll be on those three sub-points there. And we'll look at these in, in two categories when we think about the miseries of this life. Uh, we'll look at it first from the physical aspect and then also the spiritual aspect. And we're going to start very broad when we talk about the physical miseries, um, and then we'll bring it back into more particular ones. So when we think about the physical miseries, and when we go back to the reality of the curse that God placed upon mankind in Genesis 3, if you remember there, it was a curse that not only affected mankind, but also the whole creation itself. And so when we think about the physical miseries of this life and think about it in, in very broad terms, we think of things like hurricanes and tornadoes and pestilence and famine, wars, uh, wild beasts attacking people, and etc. And I want to look at various passages that speak to this end. Okay, this is Ezekiel 5, verses 15 through 17. It always looks so much bigger on my computer than it does here, so <laughs> I apologize. I need, I need to test it out, come in here and test it out. So if you can read that. Lucy, thanks. You shall be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and a horror to the nations all around you when I execute judgments on you in anger and fury. The furious rebukes, I am the Lord, I have spoken. When I send against you the deadly arrows of famine, arrows for destruction, which I will send to destroy you, Okay, so a very sobering uh, reality of what God promised that he would do because of the rebellion of Israel. Ezekiel 33, 27, if somebody can read that for us. Thus says the Lord God, as I live, truly those who are in the waste places shall fall by the sword. 
And whoever is in the open field, I will give to the beast to be devoured. And those who are in the strong, in strongholds and in caves shall die by pestilence. Okay. Ezekiel 38, verses 18 through 22. But on that day the day of God shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, my wrath will be roused in my anger. For in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath I declare, on that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens, and the beasts of the fields, and all creeping things that creep on the ground, and all the people who are, in the, who are on the face of the earth shall quake in my presence. And the mountains shall be thrown down, and the cliffs shall fall, and every wall shall tumble to the ground. I will summon a sword against God on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him. And I will reign upon him and his hordes, and the many peoples who are with him, uh, torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. Okay, so you get that, that general description there of God's judgment against Israel, but also against the nation that he's appointing to come against Israel, and then uh, giving out justice towards them, and again, in those more broad-scale ways that we see happening. And then one more here from Deuteronomy 32. And I will heap disastrous disasters upon them. I will send... Oh, sorry. <clears throat> and I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of the beast against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Okay, so that is all a reality of what's taken place because of man's rebellion against God that we see in Genesis uh, chapter 3. And again, that's more of a broad scale look at those miseries that come upon humanity. But we also see the more private and particular miseries that come upon humanity. And this can be seen in the many uh, diseases and sicknesses, things of that nature. Um, we'll say more about that uh, in a minute. But let me just point you to a couple passages here. Uh, Deuteronomy 28, verse 22 says, The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation, and fiery heat. Leviticus 26.16, I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. Okay, so you have these diseases and sicknesses that come upon mankind again for, for their rebellion against God. Um, and in addition to those physical ailments that we suffer as mankind, we also see the loss of property and estates as part of these miseries. Zephaniah 113, if somebody can read that for us. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. Okay, and you can understand how God is uh, the, the totality of the curse on every aspect of creation. We see that throughout, throughout the scripture. Um, and then when you think even more specifically here, we think about the loss of reputation amongst the rest of mankind, that being another misery that has come upon us in this life. Deuteronomy 28:37, and you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you. Okay, and Deuteron uh, Proverbs actually speaks to this end as well, about the man who lives foolishly 
He becomes a byword. He becomes a taunt, a mocking for people. Um, so again, the effects of sin are all around us. They're within us, and they're very serious. So there is indeed great misery that sin brings through the loss of reputation, and you can properly uh, testify in your own life how sin has caused uh, your name maybe to be dishonored or to become a statement of mocking uh, when you lived foolishly uh, in your sin. So we see those miseries manifest themselves in the physical realm, uh, but we also see them in the spiritual realm. And through the fall, we see that men are made liable to the bondage of the devil, uh, led about by him to do his will, as we see in 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. If somebody can read that passage for us. And the Lord's ser- servant, servant, I'm sorry, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently, enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from their snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Okay, so verse 26, they're very important and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Okay, We also see the uh, penalty for sin show up in the judiciary blindness of the mind. In other words, men not being able to comprehend spiritual things. 2 Corinthians 4.4, in their case, the God of this world, referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Romans 11.8, Paul speaks very similarly in this way. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Okay, Romans 1, a couple passages here, we see this aspect of a degenerate understanding. Verse 28 says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Okay, so there's this judiciary blindness that comes upon mankind. And backing up a couple verses here in Romans 1, 26 and 27, if somebody can read that for us. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations Okay, so verse 26, again, for this reason God gave them up. So this judiciary blindness uh, that came came upon mankind. Um, And then lastly, one of the very uh, serious ones that we really see here is in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12, when we think about God causing people, as we see here in verse 11, let's read this. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth 
but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Okay? So being given over to strong delusions and belief of damnable errors. Okay? So these, these are very heavy and weighty when we think about the reality of the miseries of this life that man has been subjected to because of his rebellion against God. Now, on your notes there, the second point that we'll hit here is thinking about the reality that not only has man been subjected to the miseries of this life, but also to death itself. And we look back here at Genesis chapter 2, and we see this command in verses 16 and 17, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, so we see this warning given by God, and we understand the rebellion as we have looked at in chapter 3, and man rebelling against God, and through that act of rebellion, death enters in. As Paul states here in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. A little later on in Romans, or we're going to come back to Romans here in a second. First uh, Corinthians 15, 22, in Adam all die. And if you remember correctly, we've looked back at the reality that we're all united to Adam by nature. And therefore, death comes upon all men. And then Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Now, I know that I'm going to get to this more next week when I talk about the provision for sin that God has made for his people through the person and work of Jesus, but the Puritan Thomas Vincent's commentary was just too good to to leave out and wait until next week, so I've included it today. Um, And in response to this point of the catechism, Vincent asks and answers this question. He says, is death a punishment unto all upon whom it is inflicted. And notice the difference here, okay, between the believer and the unbeliever. The answer, though death be the consequent of sin in all, yet to believers through Christ it is unstained. It's a good Puritan statement there. And is an outlet, notice this, is an outlet from misery, and an inlet to glory, right? So how Jesus Christ has reversed that, that curse. The reality is that we're going to die, but for the believer, as Paul says in Philippians 1, to die is gain. It's no longer loss, okay? Because we go into the presence of God. Now, the second part of that reality that Vincent talks about here is extremely weighty. Death to the wicked and unbelievers is a dreadful punishment. Being a king of terrors and grim sergeant that is sent by God to arrest the wicked and convey them into future misery. So the miseries of this life are a foreshadow for the wicked of the miseries that they will enter into eternally in hell which is extremely weighty, and I hope that it causes great humility in our hearts to just cry out with thankfulness to
to God that he would deliver us and make us his own. So that last statement by Vincent leads into our third point there on your notes, and that is that man is made liable to the pains of hell forever. And again, here we come to a topic that opponents of it have tried to refute from time to time throughout the history of the church. Some have tried to look at hell and say that at the final judgment, the wicked will be thrown into the lake of fire and be annihilated. That is, they will cease to exist both physically and spiritually. Okay? Some have taken that view. Others have tried to say that hell is only a temporary holding place and that all people will eventually be freed from it and enter into the joys of heaven. However, the clear biblical orthodox position has always held that hell is a place of eternal conscious torment. Now, undoubtedly, nobody likes to think or talk about the reality of hell for too long. But either neglecting this doctrine or trying to smooth it over in no way changes the truth of what God says about it in his word. And so what I want to do at this time is to look at the textual evidence that we see in Scripture when it speaks about hell. So let's do that. I want to start with the Old Testament and look at a text from Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. If somebody can read that for us. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Okay. So the Hebrew word here that is used for everlasting is olam, which doesn't always mean everlasting depending on the context. But when you look at this passage in Daniel, it's clear what is being contrasted is this reality of eternal or everlasting life and eternal or everlasting judgment or contempt is another way that it's uh, used here. So again, context has to drive the meaning of the passage. So I would encourage you, if you have any, if you have any speed bumps over that, uh, that text there to go back and look at it in its proper context, and I think you'll see that the word everlasting there is the proper translation. But even if that weren't the case, the numerous amounts of scripture that are left remaining uh, that speak about the eternality of hell are sufficient to convince us. So let's move forward here and look at Matthew chapter 3. Verse 12, if somebody would like to read that for us. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Okay. So you may remember from the context there, this is John the Baptist's prediction of the judgment that Jesus would bring in the end. And he portrays this decisive separation of the wheat and the chaff, and a term that is used for believers and unbelievers. And the term unquenchable fire here implies a fire that will not be extinguished, and therefore a punishment that will not end. This is confirmed in Mark chapter 
9, verses 43 through 48, if somebody can read that for us. heavy passage there. Here, the unquenchable fire that Jesus refers to is clearly hell, as he says back there in verse 43. It's better to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. So it qualifies what is meant there. And the last line shows that the point is the unending unending misery of those who go there. Verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This was speaking, if you've you've done study on this and you understand the the context here, it was speaking about the valley of Hinnom just outside Jerusalem where the garbage was normally thrown outside the city and also the bodies of criminals were also thrown out there. It was a huge waste area. But every now and then, you would have so much waste that some waste would trickle just beyond the outskirts of the ring of fire. And what would happen at that time is the worms would eat whatever came just outside of the the fire. And so Jesus, using this terminology, would have been very um, clear in the mind of his readers to show that that worm never dies. In other words, it always has an opportunity to feast upon something. And again, the picture there is to show the eternality of it. The worm doesn't ever die. It's always there. It always has something to feast on. It's never quenched. And so I want you to think about this. If annihilationism were in view, why would the stress be laid upon the fire not being quenched and the worm never dying? Clearly, the focus is on the duration of the suffering of the wicked, which is eternally. Uh, Matthew 18, verse 8, also speaks to this end. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. So you see the same thing being discussed here in Mark 9 and Matthew 18. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet. And notice how Matthew describes it to be thrown into the eternal fire. So Matthew uses almost the same exact words as Mark, but at the end, instead of referring it to it as the unquenchable fire, he uses the synonym eternal fire. And I want you to also think about the situation with Judas Iscariot. This is what Jesus says about him in Matthew 26, verse 24, if somebody can read that for us. I want you to think about the implications here of of Jesus' statement regarding Judas. 
If Judas were destined for glory eventually, as some would teach, that he's just going to hell for a temporary period, however long that period may be, but he'll eventually get in there, or even if he was destined for annihilation, it's difficult to imagine why it would have been better for him not to have been born. If he's going to simply cease to exist then it was actually better for him that he was born because at least he got to experience what it means to exist. The only logical explanation as to why it would have been better for him not to have been born is because ceasing to exist is better than existing forever in eternal conscious torment. I think the statement that Jesus makes about Judas is very clear. Looking on a bit further in Matthew's Gospel at chapter 25, verses 41 and 46, again we see the eternality of hell. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And again, when we look at the contrast that Jesus is using here, okay, eternal life, right, that's never going to end for us. We're entering into joyful bliss forever as believers, and the wicked will enter into the horrors of hell also eternally. So again, it's, it's weighty, and I think it's clear for us what Jesus is getting at here in these passages. A couple more passages that speak to this end are found in Mark 3 and Matthew 12, if somebody can read those for us. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Okay, so these passages really rule out the idea that after a time of suffering in hell, sinners will then be forgiven and admitted to heaven. Matthew says that there will be no forgiveness in the age to come for the unforgivable sin that Will spoke about. And so we also see Mark calling it an eternal sin. which shows that the word eternal is indeed a word of duration and refers to the eternal state of mankind. Looking at Luke's gospel in chapter 16, verse 26, you may remember the, uh, the story here that Jesus is telling about the rich man and Lazarus. And in Luke 16, 26, Abraham speaking, saying, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. So none may cross from there to us. And the point, again, is that the suffering there cannot be escaped. There is no way out. And then finally, a few more texts that speak to the duration of hell. Jude 12 and 13, if somebody can read that for us. 
at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Okay, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And then Revelation 14, 11 and chapter 20, verse 10, 14, 11 says, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Okay. Now, again, when we think about this broadly, and we go back to Genesis, and we think about what man lost in his rebellion against God, we think about what Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, what does he say? Come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. rest. I'll give you rest. See? You contrast that with the wicked. They have no rest, day or night. Okay? And then in verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 10, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Pete. Well, how do you explain the other passages of darkness and fire? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that's, that's a good question. You know, some have asked the, the question, is it a literal fire that's going to be burning? Um, how can you have fire and darkness at the same time? And when I think when the scriptures use this imagery, it's used in such a way that it's portraying something worse than it's actually explaining. So when it talks about the lake of fire, about darkness, I, I believe these are terms to refer to the suffering that the wicked will endure, that the torment will be perpetual and it'll be unending. So that's the way that, that I would look at it. I don't see it as a contradiction. I see it as a use of terms to describe something that's even worse than you could possibly imagine. Yep, Chris. Well, wouldn't it, that, I just, just piggybacking off of that, wouldn't that make sense considering when, when the scripture speaks of, of heaven, it generally speaks of it as a place where, uh, yeah. for the most part, it's something that we can't right. be, uh, imagine or, yeah. or you know, fathom. So uh, if hell was the antithesis of that, then right. how it would be. Yeah, and that, that's a great great point. As we've been studying through Revelation 21 and 22, we see John using those terms that would have been familiar to his readers, even though they may not be exactly literal in all those, all those places. So you do have those two contrasts, that the joys of heaven will be far greater than we can imagine, and the horrors of hell will be far greater than we can imagine as well. So, yeah, Ryan. Do any of those people who try to explain hell as like a temporary place and it will get to heaven, do they ever try to put a number on like how long? Because if God made hell temporary and everyone will come to heaven, that kind of nullifies the incarnation and the necessity of Christ's death and separation from the Father and all that kind of stuff. Do they try to explain that away somehow? Uh, do they try to s explain it away somehow? Yes. <laughs> yes. Do they fail in their explanation? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Because you're right. You I mean, you have to go back to the authority of God's word and look at it and say, what is God saying about these things? And again, 
I, I, I get it. I understand the reality that it, it's not pleasant to sit here and think about these things. Even throughout the week of preparing this, it's just like the weight of it is sitting on me. It's like, man, this is serious. But I'm going to get to that in just a second about the seriousness of hell and what it's telling us. Because it's telling us something about God and about us. Um, so I, I definitely want to want to hit on that. Okay. Um, so yeah, you, you have uh, you know these things being stated here, and they're serious, they're weighty. So let's let's talk about that for a second. Let's think about a question that people often ask, or maybe just ponder, is how can a a finite being who commits sin in time and space be subjected to an eternity of punishment. In other words, the thought there is the punishment seems greater than the crime. So perhaps you've heard that argument before. So let me throw that out there. Maybe you've thought about that. Um, how, how do you think through that? How do you answer that? Yes. Yeah. Still a pencil. You don't go to jail for twenty years. Right. You kill someone. You don't get a. You don't go. You don't get detention. Right. It's fitting for the crime. Right. But when you have a sin against God, who is uh, eternal. Yeah. Um, in His nature, um, and and holy. Yes. Uh, holy times three and eternal. The the punishment for the crime is fitting because you sin against one who is eternal. Right. So the consequence for that sin should be eternal as it matches the one against whom you sin. Very good. Very good. Excellent explanation. Chris? Uh, just to add to that, I would say that also the question seems to assume that once somebody stops dying, they'll, they'll cease to sin against God. Mm. Uh, so if somebody, if somebody continues to exist, which since we don't believe in annihilation, then right. it's going to be forever. We will continuously, perpetually break God's law. And uh, also just... Just considering the fact that um, I think the question undermines uh, the, the God of the Bible anyway, because it, it assumes that we're able to uh, to assess God and, and assess His judgments and determine whether or whether or not we believe that they're fair and just. So right. it actually undermines right. the God of the Bible to begin with. Yeah, so we, we subject God to our standard and we kind of put Him on trial and say, this isn't fair what you've rendered. Yeah, and we, we, we turn it around. Jonathan? Yeah, uh, and I like the point that he raised, and I think that the fact that we're going to have a fleshly nature for eternity, right. and that that nature is only able to put out that which is displeasing to God, right. unless that nature is, unless we're given a new nature, right. the Bible able to put out deeds that are pleasing to God, right. we're always going to be an enemy to God. Right, right, good stuff. Ryan, I saw that you had, okay. Yeah, and then I'll just, come to you. Uh, I guess, physicalizing the spiritual stuff that they said, Think of Esther, she couldn't even go in before the king mm -hmm. without the penalty of death, even for just being there. So it's like the, the stature of the offended party makes right. the severity of the punishment. Like Good. if you make a joke at your friend, it's not a big deal. If you make a joke at the king's daughter, well, your head's gone. Right. Yeah. 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 No, that's a good point. Diane. I was just thinking that also, again, there, we don't understand that. Sin is not just what we do, mm -hmm. it's who we are, it's right. everything yeah. we've thought wrong, 
yeah. all of our wrong motives to God, all of our thoughts that were against God yeah. and against His law. Yeah. So I, I think it's the punishment for all that we are. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and not just what we do or don't do. Yeah, yeah, we're that that's our nature. Right. Is, yeah. <laughs> Sinners were rebels against God. Well, Bruce Davidson uh, wrote an article in the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society uh, some years ago, and he was talking about some of you may be familiar with Jonathan Edwards and you know the different things that he writes. And Edwards did a really good job on thinking through this question. So I want to share some of the things that Edwards said, and as well as Davidson saying in regards to uh, to Edwards here. Um, and it kind of piggybacks on what Ryan just stated. Um, I, I really like the point that he brought out here, that the heinousness of any crime must be gauged according to the worth or dignity of the person it is committed against. So, again, uh, threatening murder against someone is a very serious crime. Threatening murder against the president is even more serious than that because... The, the crime is uh, in line with the one who is being threatened or being sinned against. And when you think about God and who he is, uh, it makes sense, as Desmond said, uh, God being infinitely wonderful and glorious, and that any sin against him is infinitely evil and merits an infinite punishment. Um, Davidson says here, an infinite unending punishment is consistent with an infinitely great God. Um, and he, he says this, instead of eternal punishment, we could just as easily call it infinite punishment since that is what it amounts to. Um, he goes on and says, uh, our, or quoting Edwards here, or Edwards' line of thought, our unwillingness to accept the existence of hell has two main causes, and one is we have no real conception of how evil sin is and what it deserves, Right? So as you ponder the truths of the scriptures that we've just looked at and you think about, wow, this is serious, it tells you two things. One, God is far more holy than I can comprehend and I'm far more sinful than I can comprehend, right? Because of the reality of the judgment that is meted out. It brings that seriousness of it. Um, Edwards notes this, that we are more shocked by the idea of hell than we are by the disregard and contempt men regularly show toward the majesty of God. I thought that was a really good point. More shocked by the horror of an eternity of hell for mankind than we are about the disregard that we show towards God, the contempt that we show towards God. Edward says this, and I've modified the language here a little bit so you can understand it a little bit better. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. He says this. Does it seem to you incredible that God should be so utterly regardless of the sinner's welfare as to sink him into an infinite abyss of misery? Is this shocking to you? And is it not at all shocking to you that you should be so utterly regardless as you have been of the honor and glory of the infinite God? So Edward just kind of flips the tables and said, okay, the, the reality of an eternity in hell, does that shock you? How about the reality of your offense against an infinitely holy God? So I think that really helps. And uh, Davidson says here, in other words, our rejection of the idea of hell, listen to this, 
is in itself a symptom of our hardness of heart toward our own sins and toward God himself. If we had a spiritual apprehension of the true nature of things, we would not be amazed at hell's severity, but only that we ourselves have not fallen into it before now. I think that's a great, a great statement here. And then one last thing, he says, if only one sin deserves this kind of punishment, how much more, and this goes to Diana Lynn's point, how much more a multitude of daily sins in thought, word, and deed. Such guilt is compounded by our countless particular debts to God's generosity and care in our lives, which we barely recognize or thank him for. It is compounded by the fact that we refuse to embrace Christ as a free pardon from such immense guilt. It is compounded by our resentment of the blessings that others receive, including salvation. It is compounded by our negligence and foolishness about the condition of our own souls, which can be seen in the refusal to do very much at all to prepare for eternity. I think those are really helpful statements when we think about the weightiness uh, of this topic. And then lastly, Ed Edwards concludes that the considerations of God's character not only make the existence of hell reasonable and just, but also necessary. And he says this, only an everlasting sentence could adequately manifest the infinite extent of God's hatred for sin. Thus, we see not only the great objection against this doctrine answered, but the truth of the, of the doctrine established by reason. And so Edwards was pointing out here the reasonableness of hell, why it's reasonable. And the way that it becomes reasonable in our own minds is as we have our mind renewed by the word of God and we understand the character of God and how we have lived against him as mankind in general. So... I think some really good points there, also some very sobering passages when we think about the ultimate penalty for sin. And again, this should create in us a greater understanding of the holiness of God, a greater understanding of what we deserve for offending this God, and a greater passion for the lost who are heading toward this judgment, and a greater appreciation for the gospel and our Lord Jesus Christ who has delivered us from the wrath to come which I will launch into next week joyfully. <laughs> okay. Any other uh, thoughts about that as we conclude, Lucy? presence of God will be manifest in his justice and his wrath forever. Um, I remember Pastor Rick and I a few years back when we talked about that passage from 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2 where it talks about away from the presence of the Lord and the, and the glory of his might. Um, and I, I think the point that we were looking at there was the reality of you're separated from 
every aspect of the goodness, the benevolence, the care, even under the common grace of God, but certainly God is present in his justice and in his wrath uh, in, in hell in, in that way. So um, it's, it's an, because God is good, it's an absence from all that is good. And it's nothing but horror and terror and wrath and justice meted out for, for all, of, all of eternity. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. David. <clears throat> yeah. Pastor Rick? Yeah, brother, just um, in reference to the text you were just pointing out in 2 Thessalonians 1. Um, it says upon Christ's return uh, that he will, I'm sorry, look for the word. Well, it says that they will suffer destruction. It can be translated away from the presence of the Lord. Yeah, right. Um, Right. Right. And also, the text you just had up from um, Revelation 14, the verse right before it, yep. talks about um, all those who have received the mark of the beast, and, um, that they will be thrown into, uh, sorry, again, uh, they will drink the wine of God's wrath, pour full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the yeah. Goes yeah, and in the presence in the of the Lamb. Yeah, yep, yep. Amen. Yes, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, it's all good. And on the way back, um, they had stopped a priest who had, you know, 
a pedophile, you know, hundreds of children, and, um, you know, in her mind, she was just like, oh, well, you know, it wasn't that bad, you know, he probably suffered a, you know, traumatic childhood, and so Deborah just constantly would ask her every time he would see her, was it wicked? You know, he'd roll down his car window when he'd drive by, he's like, Connie, was it wicked? And, you know, she would come to the Bible studies, even though she was an atheist at his house, and he would greet her, hi, Connie, was it wicked? <laughs> and, like, you know, over and over he just asked her, was it wicked? And then finally she just, you know, basically broke down and said, it was evil. And then she said when she was finally able to have a category for evil in her mind, she realized that she was simple too, and then the gospel made sense. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Praise the Lord. Yeah, it's yeah. one of my favorite stories in this yeah. yeah. Amen. All right. Let me go ahead and uh, got to get that clock working. <laughs> let's go ahead. And, uh, we got plenty of time, actually. Let's uh, let's keep going here. Uh, let me go ahead and and pray for us. Um, Father, these are very sobering thoughts um, and sobering passages that we have looked at from your inerrant word. Lord, you have laid out for us the reality of who you are and who we are and what we deserve. And mercifully, you have opened our eyes to behold the provision that you have made for us in your Son. And Father, I pray as we contemplate these passages that we've looked at this morning, that indeed they would ignite within us a greater understanding of your holiness a greater understanding of our own sinfulness, Lord, and it would create a great burden for those outside of Christ, Lord, who are a heartbeat away of entering into that eternal judgment where there will be no escape. And may we bring to them this beautiful, glorious gospel of God in the flesh absorbing the wrath of God fully for all who would repent and believe. Every sin can be absolved through Him. And we thank You that we have been made recipients of this grace and mercy. So strengthen our hearts with it, Lord. Help us to have a proper perspective on it. Help us to redeem the time that we have here on this earth to proclaim this glorious gospel that men might be rescued uh, from what awaits them. And uh, just thank you for that, Lord. So give us hearts and minds that continue to be attentive as we move now into the service, Lord. And we pray for the honor of your name to abound. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.